This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the eerie tale of the life of a magician among the spirits. Welcome back to Storical, my dear listeners. We are officially in October, which is my power month, as my husband likes to call it. For some reason, I'm always ridiculously giddy in October, probably because it's the time of the year when all the things I like are front and center. Crisp fall air, ghost stories, witches, haunted houses, vampires... You know, all the things that make one happy. To that end, I feel like I have to really bring it to the podcast this month and give you a historical figure that just embodies that mystical, spooky October energy. This was a very easy decision. I'm sure you all have a friend who fixates on some random piece of knowledge and likes to talk about it whenever they can squeeze it into a conversation. That is me with Harry Houdini. If you grew up in the 90s, like me, you may recall the Arnold Schwarzenegger masterpiece, Last Action Hero. In this movie, a kid gets a magical theater ticket that transports him into movies. There's this whole long scene where his old man friend, who works at this ancient 1920s era theater, tells him about this magic ticket that he received from Harry Houdini when he was a child. My eight-year-old brain had a to-the-library moment because the internet wasn't a thing yet, I'm apparently old, and I read up about the magician and just found his whole story spooky and fascinating. Then, when I was in my early 20s, my friend got us an invite to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. It's this, I think, 1930s era mansion that is a magic club where magicians perform nightly, and at the time, Neil Patrick Harris was the president. You have to be invited by a member magician in order to get in. I have no idea how she got us in, but the Magic Castle was like something out of a movie. It was old and creepy. And the magic was surprisingly cool. Like with special effects being what they are in movies these days, magic seems kind of corny. But when you go to an honest-to-God magic show with a magician who knows what they're doing, it's super fun and actually feels legit. Like I can see why people used to be so into it. Long aside, they had a Harry Houdini seance room. So that was another opportunity where I got to feel cool and in the know. Then in 2015... A nonfiction book called The Witch of Lime Street came out, and it was about Houdini and the spiritualism craze that was a big deal in the 1800s and early 1900s. I listened to this on a solo drive from Los Angeles to Seattle, and you guys, psychics, ectoplasm, Houdini, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's got it all. All right, so if you hear the name Houdini and just think of like David Copperfield, David Blaine, Chris Angel, that school of magicians that is to say campy and old-fashioned, I'm here to blow your mind with Sherlock Holmes, the Romanovs, and more psychics than you can count. Buckle up, dear listeners, and imagine yourself in a dark room, hands clasped around the seance table, as a series of unearthly raps starts tapping out a message from beyond the grave. Chapter 1. Wandering Rabbi. When you think of Harry Houdini, you probably think of the intense gaze and dark hair of a short, tuxedo gentleman with wrists bound in handcuffs. 
That was Harry at the height of his fame, but his roots, despite his claims otherwise, were far more humble. Houdini was born on March 24th, 1874, in Budapest, Hungary, though his passport had enlisted as born in Appleton, Wisconsin. We'll get to that in a bit. Houdini's parents were Mayor Samuel Weiss, a student of the law and a rabbi, and Cecilia Steiner. Mayor Weiss had been recently widowed with an infant son named Herman when he decided to escape his problems in the Hungarian countryside and head to Budapest. One day, one of Mayor's friends was telling him how lovesick he felt for a young woman named Cecilia Steiner. He asked Mayor to go talk to her for him because no matter what point in history we're talking about, all people have played these high school games. I love it. Anyway, Mayor went to see Cecilia to talk to her about his friend, but it was love at first sight, and he promptly forgot about his friend and professed his own love for Cecilia. He sent her a really long letter in which he asked her to marry him by way of telling her every single thing he'd ever done in his life, lest someone try and spread rumors about him. This was the type of guy he was. They were married in 1863, and mind you, this was all the same year that his previous wife had died and he had just met Cecilia. After the death of their first child, they went on to have two sons, Nathan born in 1870 and Gottfried born in 1872, before having Eric, spelled E-H-R-I-C-H, in 1874. Eric Weiss is Harry Houdini's birth name. The more you know, star. They then had another son, Dezo, born in 1876. Now, here's the point in the story where you have to start thinking in terms of those old-timey greatest showman-type legends. Men like Houdini were all about exaggerating to increase their own mystique. So here we go. Mayor Samuel went to London and then on to America, presumably to look for work. Houdini would later recount that the reason why his father left the family was because he had to quickly escape Budapest after killing a Hungarian prince named Eric, again spelled E-H-R-I-C-H, with a sword in a duel. Houdini claimed to be named after that prince as some sort of blood debt situation. Whether this story has any truth to it is sort of hard to say. Some biographers say it could have elements of truth. Others say it's just a Houdini legend. In terms of why the duel happened, I saw a report that Harry said it was a duel over the love of his mother, Cecilia. After he died, however, his brother Theo and his wife Bess both made mention that the duel occurred because the prince had said something derogatory about Jews. Regardless of the circumstances for their decision to move to America, in 1876, Cecilia packed up her boys, including Herman, who was about 15 years old, and they set sail for America to join Mayor Samuel. They settled in Appleton, Wisconsin, where Mayor Samuel was hired to be rabbi at an Orthodox Jewish church. They had two more children, another boy, and finally a little girl named Gladys. During this time, a traveling circus came through town, and young Eric began practicing the tightrope. He joined up with a local street circus at just seven years old, doing his tightrope act, calling himself Eric, Prince of Airs. Eric was also interested in locks. As a preteen, he apprenticed with a locksmith, learning all the ins and outs of not just locks and keys, but handcuffs as well. Both of these youthful gigs were harbingers of his future fame. These early years were stable and fun for the little boy who would grow up to become Harry Houdini. But then, the family suffered a major setback. Mayor Samuel and his wife Cecilia didn't speak a word of English, and he was too traditional and strict for the American synagogue. 
1882, as Mayor Samuel was embarking on his quest to establish citizenship for himself and his family, his congregation fired him, and the family was thrown into abject poverty. They began moving around trying to avoid paying rent. All the boys were put to work, and none were more industrious than little Eric. He sold newspapers, became a shoeshine, did everything he could to hustle and help his family. He once came home and gleefully asked his mother to shake him. She did so, and coins spilled from pockets, delighting her and fermenting his status as favorite son. Then in 1885, tragedy struck when Mayor Samuel's eldest son from his first marriage died at just 22 years old. Mayor Samuel was thrown into a deep depression and had trouble getting out of bed. I'm guessing that his difficulty finding work and then the tragedy of the death of his son really made him fearful of the future because he made 12-year-old Eric swear that he would always take care of and provide for his mother. Eric took that solemn vow, and as we'll discuss in a bit, he took the vow to take care of his mother very seriously. After Herman's death, Mayor Samuel went to New York looking for work, which he found giving private lessons to Hebrew students. Eric also set out hoping to make his fortune. Life on the road for a 13-year-old was rough, though. His family nickname had always been Eri. Wanting to blend in and increase his job prospects, he started going by Harry, which sounds kind of like Airy, with a last name of White. Anti-Semitism was pretty big at the time, not to say that it's ever stopped being big, but at the time there were no protections and a lot of prejudice. And that, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. A broken father, an adoring mother with too many children to care for, and a young son with a hunger for making his fortune and meeting his destiny. Chapter two, the floral sister. Missing his family and wanting to help them in their impoverished plight, teenage Harry made his way to New York where he was reunited with his father. They shared a tiny apartment and saved their money to bring the rest of the family over. Let's talk for a second about Harry's physique. He was a short man, which worked to his favor in many of his future stunts and escapes. But even though he was short, Houdini was super ripped. He started running 10 miles a day as a teen, becoming a track star, in fact, and winning several medals. What's funny, though, is there's a picture of him from about 1890 where he's got medals pinned to his shirt, some of which are real, the rest are fake, which is a perfect encapsulation of his career. Anyway, he continued on working to help support his family. He got a job as a necktie cutter because that was the sort of job that you could have in the late 1800s. And how he got it is straight from a Looney Tunes cartoon, I swear. He cut in front of all the other applicants, took down the help wanted sign, and informed the employer that the position was filled. I seriously hope that I have that confidence and swagger one day. Life wasn't all job and hard work, however. Around this time, Harry was profoundly affected by a memoir he had found about a famous French magician named Robert Houdin. Houdin was a working magician in Paris in the 1840s. At the Palace Royal, he had a 200-seat show called Soiree Fantastique that featured tricks such as the inexhaustible bottle, in which wine seemingly would never stop flowing from the bottles servers poured. Another popular trick was blindfolding his sons and assistants, who would then correctly identify objects on the stage. The theater also featured orange trees that would seemingly bloom before the audience's eyes. The Soiree Fantastique totally reminds me of the Vampire Theater and Interview with the Vampire. So just imagine little Harry cutting those neckties by day and 
then burning the midnight oil, reading Houdin's memoirs, and practicing card tricks and other illusions. When Harry was introduced to Jacob Hyman, one of his co-workers at the necktie store, Harry had found his partner in crime. The two were enthusiastic about magic and had dreams to fill theaters like Houdin's. Now, if you're listening and you're like, Houdin? Houdini? Those sound familiar? You're right. Houdin is spelled H-O-U-D-I-N. Jacob told Harry that if you add an I after a person's name, then that signifies that you are like that person when speaking French. So Harry decided to add an I to Houdin, and thus the stage name Houdini was born. In Harry's mind, it basically meant little Houdin because he so desperately wanted to be just like his idol. Jacob and Harry billed themselves as the Brothers Houdini and got small bookings in dime museums and sideshow acts. They did simple magic, such as escaping from trunks and making flowers appear. But as childhood friendships often do, the two fell out with each other and Harry instead brought on his younger brother Theo to perform with him. But tragedy found them again. Harry was actually performing when someone ran up to him from the crowd and told him to get home because his father was dying. His father's last words were, Harry will fill your apron with gold one day. After his father's death, Harry felt even more pressure to provide for his mother and siblings. But in 1894, it was performing tricks in the Dime Museum on Coney Island that Harry met his destiny. Theo was quite taken with Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner, who went by Bess, a Brooklyn-born daughter of German Catholic immigrants. Bess was in a musical group called the Floral Sisters with two friends. The trio would sing and dance for the crowds at Coney Island. Theo set up a double date for he and Bess, with the intention of pairing Harry with one of Bess's friends. But as you can guess, Bess and Harry only had eyes for each other. Bess had only moved to the city. The five boroughs of New York City were not yet united, one month prior. She was 18 years old, and Harry was 20. Their courtship was fast and intense. Harry made her swear that she would never do anything to betray him ever. He had also made his brother Theo swear this oath. Presumably, this was because a magician's secrets could never be revealed, especially back in these days when there was serious money on the line, because this was one of the few spectacle forms of entertainment. After just one week, Harry and Bess married. And dear listeners, I'm sure you've often heard the saying, behind every great man is a great woman. Well, without Bess, Harry would not have become the great showman that he became. First, poor Theo got kicked out of the Brothers Houdini Act. Theo was nowhere near as talented at magic as his older brother, although we'll touch on his magical act in his later years in a bit. Theo royally messed up the trunk escape bit and had to be rescued from the trunk. Harry was a perfectionist when it came to his act, and he, of course, was livid. So when he married Bess, he saw an opportunity. Harry was short, but Bess was even shorter and could fit much better into trunks and other small spaces. Bess became his assistant, and the two performed together for many years, all without a glimmer of hope for a big break. Chapter 3, King of Handcuffs. With Bess by his side, the Houdinis unveiled one of their first and most enduring tricks, the metamorphosis. This trick saw Harry bound, put in a sack, which was put in a trunk, which was further put in a cabinet. Bess would draw the curtain and clap three times. On the third clap, Houdini would be the one drawing back the curtain to Bess in the cabinet. 
This trick was common at the time, but what was novel about their use was that it featured a woman as well as a man. The other magicians of the time were predominantly men who worked alone. The trick got the Houdinis into the Welsh Brothers Circus, a traveling circus in which their room and board was paid, meaning that the rest of the money they banked they could save and send home to Harry's mother. He was serious about fulfilling his promise to his father. Traveling with the circus meant that they had to jump in where they were needed. This meant that they had to start at the bottom and work the Punch and Judy shows. Harry would also be tapped to play the wild man, in which he would be featured in a cage with makeup and his hair disheveled, chewing on raw meat. This is something that I found fascinating to learn. Harry didn't just sell out theaters where he had billing as a magician. I mean, he did later when he had made a name for himself. But for almost half of his career, Harry was traveling around performing magic and vaudeville acts. These were theatrical shows that featured singing, dancing, comedy, as well as sideshow performances and magic acts. Another popular act that Bess and Harry participated in at the time was that of clairvoyance and seances. This is in stark contrast to Harry's later years, in which he theatrically made it his personal mission to debunk mediums. We'll get to that in a bit, but during their younger vaudeville years, nothing was off the table to make a buck and a shot at fame. When the circus would arrive in new towns, they would visit the cemeteries to read the gravestones and often would go door to door pretending to sell things so that they could get abreast of all the town gossip. Bess usually played the part of the clairvoyant and would essentially pretend to go into trance while Harry would theatrically press her to give people messages from those who had crossed to the other side. Sometimes they would switch it up and have Harry play the clairvoyant. By 1900, he'd been at it for almost 10 years and hadn't achieved the fame of his ambitions and dissatisfaction set in. He took stock of his talents and thought long and hard about what his next career move would be. It was then that he got the idea for jailhouse escapes. Magic tricks at the time were a dime a dozen, and it was true that magic was Harry's first love. However, he found that audiences responded to the thrill of danger when he performed escape stunts. I should also mention, Harry was a genius when it came to PR. By the 1920s, he was literally the most famous man in the world. And this was long before they had TV and internet. They barely had movies at this point. Remember how Harry was apprenticed to a locksmith when he was a kid? Well, he could pick just about any lock. To drum up publicity for his act, each time the circus arrived in a new town, he would go to the local police station and ask to be locked up. At first, sheriffs would laugh at him in disbelief, and then they would usually give in, being like, yeah, okay, kid, knock yourself out. Not only would he ask to be locked up, he would ask to be locked up naked. Yep, he would be completely bound in chains and would have a giant lock around his torso to cover up his genitals. He did this to prove that he was legit and would let people inspect him to ensure no tricks. Listeners, of course, he would escape every time, often in mere seconds, and the local newspapers would get wind of this. This, in turn, would then intrigue people to come out to his show where he would perform metamorphosis and other handcuff escapes. No longer was he Airy, Prince of Airs. Now he was Harry Houdini, the handcuff king. Some law enforcement types didn't appreciate the escapes because they felt they had been made to look like fools. But many times, Harry would end up giving the sheriffs and deputies demonstrations to increase their security. Now, here's a fun story about this. The main biography I used to research this episode, The Secret Life of Houdini, has a pretty explosive theory about Houdini. The authors posit that a CIA agent named Wilkie approached Houdini about working for him being his eyes and ears and getting him information through use of his unique skill set. 
This largely comes from the diary of William Melville, superintendent at Scotland Yard, who mentioned Houdini by name and also made mention of using magicians throughout Europe and America for espionage. Remember, we're close to the early 1900s and World War I is not too far off. Things are starting to go to hell in a handbasket. This book claims that the CIA agent, Wilkie, was the one who set up Houdini's jail escapes by getting the law enforcement teams to welcome him in in exchange for security demonstrations. If Houdini was indeed a spy, it certainly puts his visit to perform for the Romanovs in a whole new context. Chapter 4, The Escape Artist Houdini was finally becoming more well-known. Bess was dropped from his act, so he was billed as just Houdini now. She still worked as his assistant and basically did everything for him. He was your quintessential, stereotypical dude who didn't know how to take care of himself, so she ensured that he ate, had clean clothes, you know, basic survival skills. In addition to jailhouse breaks as a means of drumming up publicity, he had a few other tricks up his sleeve. Yes, pun intended. He made it a point to plan for his escapes, whenever possible, to be outside. This ensured a crowd of curious onlookers who might not otherwise come to his show. If they got a little taste, they'd be more likely to buy tickets. He also kind of started the whole offering a prize if anyone could give him handcuffs he couldn't break out of. He liked to throw around the number of $10,000, though at this point in his career, he wasn't quite there yet. In 1899, he upgraded from circus sideshows to legit vaudeville acts and finally started receiving the top billing that he craved. The following year, he traveled to England and Germany, where his escapes were a sensation, selling out theater upon theater. At the end of his run in England, he purchased a dress that was designed for Queen Victoria. Not for Bess, for his mother. Later, he surprised his mother with a trip to Budapest, the first time she had been back home since the family had left all those years before. There, he invited all her friends and family to a party and had his mother sit on a throne. He was very much a mama's boy. In 1903, he embarked on a three-month tour of Russia. At the time, it was illegal for Jews to come into Russia to work. This is another place where people believe Houdini was a spy. If that were the case, then his passport situation would have been taken care of for him. Houdini, however, had a column in one of the New York newspapers in which he would write about his travels among the great music halls of America and Europe. In his column, he said he was able to get around the anti-Semitic laws by denouncing his religion. I should also mention, he wasn't super religious, despite the fact that his dad was a rabbi. He saw his father's belief that God would provide for him foolish, after all the misfortune that befell his father. But back to Russia. It was there that Houdini did one of his most famous escapes. Houdini challenged himself to break free of a Siberian prison transport car. He did this naked, just as he did many of his other stunts, and he was checked multiple times by the secret police. The Russian secret police were not at all amused by this and put him under surveillance for the rest of his journey. But breaking free of the Siberian prison train made him a star in Russia. He quickly sold out tickets to theaters across Moscow and St. Petersburg and attracted attention from the Romanov family. Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich and his wife, Princess Elizabeth, buddied up with the Houdinis. Now keep in mind the time period. People back then were only about 150 years or so removed from actually burning witches at the stake. To many of his audiences, Houdini did literal magic given to him through supernatural means. Houdini made no claim to this and actually tried to tell people wherever he could that he was merely an illusionist with no supernatural ability whatsoever. 
The Grand Duke and his wife understood this and appreciated the spectacle. The Grand Duke's nephew, however, a czar you may have heard of named Nicholas II, and his wife, Tsarina Alexandra, they were supremely superstitious and genuinely believed that Houdini's power was supernatural. After Houdini did a private show for the Romanov family in which he made the bells of the Kremlin ring, they hadn't rung in over 100 years, and it's alleged he did this by having an assistant shoot the bell. Houdini was approached by representatives of the Romanov family, asking him to serve as the spiritual advisor to the Tsar and Tsarina. Houdini was pretty astounded and tried once more to explain that there was nothing supernatural about his illusions. He ultimately declined, and this opened up a path for a man by the name of Rasputin to fill that role in the Romanovs' household. History is nuts, my dear listeners. Okay, let's talk briefly about some of Houdini's other escapes. Houdini, despite being a skeptic, was open to the idea of being proven wrong about spirits. He had a fixation on death and madness, which led him to tour asylums. There, he was introduced to the straitjacket, which he would incorporate into his act by being suspended from the air upside down in the straitjacket. And I should note, he usually chose locations that were literally right outside of newspaper offices. Then, using contortionist skills he had learned during his time in the circus, he would escape in less than a minute. His milk can escape was introduced in 1908, and this one, one of his most famous, used a giant milk can, think like a giant urn-shaped metal can, they used these to store gallons of milk, and what this bonkers man would do is have the can filled with gallons of water. He would then be submerged into the can, and the top would be sealed and locked. Remember how he used to run 10 miles every day? Well, part of what made these escapes possible was the fact that the man was in excellent physical condition and could hold his breath for three minutes, which I don't think I could even do that for 30 seconds. Anyway, during these performances, which he obviously always escaped from, he would tell the audience to hold their breath too while he was in there. And of course, people could barely do a minute, so some people would literally panic that he was going to die. Introducing these escapes inevitably meant that copycats would spring up. This led to Houdini having to invent more elaborate and more dangerous stunts, including his most famous, the Chinese water torture cell. Many people believe that Houdini died performing this trick because of the famous Tony Curtis Houdini film. Well, that's not true. He didn't die from this trick, but it was still pretty dangerous. He would be submerged in a glass box filled with water, hanging upside down by his feet, and would be, you guessed it, handcuffed and locked in. This guy. If you haven't guessed by now, Houdini was brilliant at picking locks and would attach something to pick the locks with tape to the inner part of his foot. Sometimes he'd stick the pin in his curly hair, and there are also several instances where Bess would have a pick in her mouth, give him a good luck kiss, thus transferring the pick to him. His last major escape was from being buried alive. That one very nearly killed him. He had been thrown into a pit with dirt on top, no casket, And in a rare instance, he panicked and clawed his way to the top where he had to be pulled out by his assistants. You know how I said there were a lot of copycats? Well, at the time, you couldn't copyright a magic trick. So Houdini was pretty creative when it came to protecting his interests. For the Chinese water torture cell, he first performed it billed as a one-act play, which he performed for just one person. By having it start out as a play, he was able to copyright the trick and thus sue anyone who tried to imitate him. Another ingenious trick he employed to protect his intellectual property 
was through his brother Theo. Theo kept up with magic and used the stage name Hardeen. When Houdini would tire of a trick after the first run, Hardeen would then perform it, thus keeping the secrets and the profits in the family. When Houdini wasn't performing escapes, he still had a stable of magic tricks. One of his most popular was swallowing needles, which he would then remove threaded on a string from his mouth. One time, he made an elephant disappear. This was achieved by putting mirrors in the back of the crate the elephant entered, so the reflection was what the audience saw. Newspapers at the time had blaring headlines about how the elephant still couldn't be found. All of this netted the magician roughly $500,000 over the course of his career. In terms of today's money, that's close to $7 million. Being a top magician in the early 1900s was lucrative. Chapter 5. Magician Among the Spirits In July of 1913, Cecilia Steiner, Houdini's beloved mother, died of a stroke. Harry was performing in Denmark at the time, and when he received the news at a party in his honor, he fainted and fell in a heap to the floor. When Houdini regained consciousness, he was inconsolable and sobbed for his poor little mama. Houdini didn't pass away himself until 1926, and in all that time, he never fully recovered from his mother's death. As you'll recall from earlier in the episode, When Harry and Bess were still struggling on the Dime Museum and vaudeville circuits, they would sometimes incorporate spiritualist seances into their act. While he was a skeptic, Houdini was intensely interested in spiritualism and actually wanted to be proven wrong, for someone to prove to him that there was life after death and that you could still commune with those who had passed on. He spent a lot of time reading about and studying spiritualists, as well as the history of magic. He even ended up turning on his idol and namesake, Houdin, and believed he was a fake. He wrote an expose about Houdin, attacking him for taking credit for tricks, illusions, and effects that were created by other magicians. I bring this up because prior to the first time that they met in 1920, Houdini sent Sir Arthur Conan Doyle a copy of a book Houdini had written called The Unmasking of Robert Houdin. Doyle was a raging spiritualist. Yes, the man who invented Sherlock Holmes, who valued logic and reason above all else, was a devotee of psychics and mediums. Doyle also praised Houdin, which is why Houdini sent him the book. Let's back up for a quick second. Spiritualism had started in around the 1840s with the Fox Sisters. If you've never heard the tale of the Fox Sisters, it's this. Two teenage girls reported that they heard unusual rappings in their house that was purported to be haunted. They claimed that the rappings could convey messages from the other side. Their Quaker family opened the girls up to the public, and the Fox sisters would perform across the country. A third elder sister later confessed that it was all a hoax. But the public was enraptured by this idea. It had origins in pseudoscience, and then with the advent of World War I, in which an entire generation of young men was wiped out, spiritualism became a huge movement. It was considered a religion by some and an amusing parlor trick by others. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had lost a son in World War I and leaned in hard to spiritualist beliefs. He had seen Houdini's show, and despite Houdini telling him that they were illusions, Doyle refused to believe it and thought Houdini had supernatural powers. It was kind of his mission to convince Houdini, the world's greatest skeptic, that mediums were real. 
After the death of his mother, Houdini was torn between his grief and his logic. He desperately wanted to find a real medium who could put him in contact with his mother. But as a great trickster and master mystifier, for him it was easy to see the tricks at work with countless mediums that he went to. Houdini was outraged that the spiritualist mediums were basically preying on the grief of desperate people. Because he knew many of the tricks they employed, thanks to his time on the circuit in his younger years, he made it his mission to expose fraudulent mediums. He wrote a book on the subject, Magician Among the Spirits, and replaced his escape acts with demonstrations in which he would expose mediums. Upon meeting Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Houdini immediately liked the man and made it clear that while he was a skeptic, he was open to having his mind changed. Lady Doyle, who was Conan Doyle's second wife, considered herself a medium and would conduct seances in which she employed automatic writing to bring forth messages from spirits. Wanting to bring Houdini to his side, Doyle invited Houdini to a seance with his wife. Now picture yourself in a dark room, hands clasped around a table, candlelight flickering as ethereal sounds crescendo all around you. Then the sound of the furious scribbling of pencil on paper. This was how most mediums would conduct their seances, always in dimly lit, if not completely dark rooms. Houdini was furious. The message that Houdini's mother allegedly communicated through Lady Doyle's writing was in English, a language Cecilia didn't speak, featured the sign of the cross, which she wouldn't have used because remember, his dad was a rabbi. And last, the day of the seance was Cecilia's birthday and no mention was made of it. Bess also reported that Lady Doyle had asked her a bunch of questions about Houdini's mother before the seance. Because they were friends, Houdini didn't want to say anything and just thanked them for the seance and left. However, Doyle promptly went to the press and said that Houdini had been converted to spiritualism. Houdini was livid and immediately denied this. Doyle was in America at the time on a lecture tour about spiritualism. Houdini decided to do a counter tour detailing how spiritualists were frauds. Needless to say, they were no longer friends after that. Houdini spent his final years relentlessly hunting psychics, including Marjorie of the Witch of Lime Street fame. The magazine Scientific American had put out a challenge to mediums. If they could prove their powers were legitimate, they would win $2,500. The judging panel was made up of psychic researchers, a psychologist, an MIT physicist, and Houdini himself. Marjorie Crandon was probably the most famous medium out there. Doyle personally recommended her to the judging committee. She spoke to her brother, Walter, who had died in the war, and through him, she alleged she was able to make unearthly sounds, levitate objects, and produce ectoplasm. I'll go into all of this in historical footnotes episode, but the committee was ready to recommend Marjorie win the contest, and when Houdini found out, he was livid. The showdown between them dragged on for a while. Houdini insisted upon multiple seances, working to disprove her. But then, at one fateful seance, Walter mused that Houdini would be gone by Halloween. Chapter 6, Sucker Punch Over the course of his mystical career, Houdini had been bound and chained upside down, underwater, buried alive, and even confined inside a washed-up sea creature, Job-style. He routinely ran 10 miles a day and trained as hard as any Olympic athlete of the time. In 1926, at 52 years old, his body was exhausted. In October of that year, Houdini was on tour both performing magic and escapes, as well as performing his demonstrations exposing psychics. 
Bess had been sick with a strange stomach bug and was recovering when Harry took to the stage in Montreal on October 22nd. After his performance, a student of McGill University approached Harry with a drawing he had made of the magician. Houdini was impressed by the drawing and invited the student back to his dressing room to draw a full-on portrait. Back in his dressing room, Houdini was relaxed on his couch going through his mail as the student drew the portrait. Bess and Houdini's personal nurse was also in the room when someone knocked on the door. J. Gordon Whitehead entered the room, and there's debate to this day on who he was and what he was doing there. Most accounts have him listed as a fellow student, with some accounts contending that he was there to return a book. Whatever his situation, he engaged Houdini in conversation as Houdini sat for his portrait. At one point, Whitehead asked if it was true that Houdini could withstand punches to the stomach a claim and a challenge Houdini had made publicly on occasion. In most accounts I've read of what happened, it seems like Houdini kind of gave him a casual dismissive answer like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, I can do that, before moving the conversation along. Whitehead immediately began punching him, throwing several hard blows. Houdini had been caught off guard, not expecting him to just unleash on him like that, and he hadn't had enough time to brace himself for the impact. He was in considerable pain, but waved him away and let the McGill student finish drawing the picture. When the portrait was finished, he remarked, you made me look a little tired in this picture. The truth is, I don't feel so well. His stomach began to hurt intensely that evening. The next day it grew worse, but that didn't stop him from boarding an overnight train to Detroit for his next performance. He refused medical attention. And when he took to the stage on October 24th, he had a fever of 104 degrees, but insisted on continuing with the performance. He had to cut the act short as his condition grew worse, and he allegedly passed out after the curtain fell and had to be carried back to his hotel room. And yet he still refused to go to the hospital. At 3 a.m. that morning, he called his doctor back in New York, who told him to go to the hospital, and after Bess grew hysterical and pleaded with him, he finally relented. Houdini had a ruptured appendix, and unfortunately, antibiotics were still decades away. He underwent emergency surgery to have the organ removed and for a day or two seemed to get better. His condition then worsened, and on October 31st, 1926, the master of mystery breathed his last. Houdini did not live to see Marjorie exposed. That happened thanks to a Harvard grad who picked up the torch after Houdini died. But nevertheless, Walter, which I say in air quotes, had been correct in his prophecy. The official cause of death was peritonitis, which is the infection caused by a ruptured appendix. But there are countless theories and suspicions to this day about what really happened. First off, Houdini probably already had appendicitis, but may have ignored the pain he was experiencing because of the fact that he had been punched. He probably just thought it had to do with that and wasn't too serious. He had a contract clause for his Detroit engagements that stipulated that if his shows were canceled for any reason, including illness, he would be heavily fined, something like $1,000 a night. That's another reason he may have been so reluctant to go to the doctor. Still stranger is the incident with Whitehead. Some reports suggest he was an amateur boxer and may have had connections with spiritualists. The spiritualist movement was huge and had adherents in all pillars of government and business interests. Because of Walter's prophecy and the murkiness of who Whitehead was, it's also been posited that Whitehead was hired, if not to actually kill Houdini, to at least beat him up. Houdini had made a lot of enemies, his former friend Sir Arthur Conan Doyle included, with his crusade to expose psychics and mediums. 
Bess, of course, was a wreck. I'm going to talk more about Bess and what she did after his death in an upcoming episode of Historical Footnotes, but for now, I'll leave you with this. As I mentioned, Houdini was a skeptic, but so desperately wanted to believe that the dead could still be contacted. In fact, after he died, spiritualists the world over said they had made contact with him, mostly so they could gloat as though spiritualism had won. Many people also didn't believe that he had died. He could escape from anything, remember? Best believed that if anyone could make contact from the other side, it would be Houdini. Before Harry died, they had agreed upon a secret code that whichever of them died first would use so that the one left behind would know if the message was real. For 10 years, every Halloween, Bess would host a seance. But never once did she hear the words from the song she had sung when they first met, Rosabelle Believe. Chapter 7, The Metamorphosis. When you're the master mystifier, you're bound to have a life of intrigue. A lot of the information presented today, such as whether Houdini was a spy, as well as the circumstances surrounding his death, are to this day debated. With such a life, one is bound to become a legend in pop culture. So on that note, let's talk all the Houdini references out there in the world today. First things first, Houdini was literally the most famous person in the world during his time. It's hard to put your head around that because he lived so long ago, but yeah, everyone knew him. There are actually a ton of artifacts left over from his various stage shows and movies. I personally really enjoy looking at his posters for his medium debunking shows. They've got that old-timey art deco vibe and are just as theatrical as the man himself. Because he was so beloved and famous, fascination with him has continued in the almost 100 years since his death. There are several movies about his life. The most famous one is probably Houdini, which came out in 1953 and stars Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh. Weirdly, there are a bunch of TV movies about Houdini, all of which definitely have the TV movie treatment. But what's most interesting to me is the absolutely random casting for the man himself. There's one from the 80s starring Will Wheaton, who was the kid in Stand By Me and Star Trek. There's another one from the 90s starring Jonathan Skeech, who was the singer in the movie That Thing You Do. And finally, most weird to me, is Oscar winner Adrian Brody in the History Channel's 2014 miniseries, also simply titled Houdini. That show took a lot of liberties and was highly stylized through a modern lens. To the point that when my husband asked me what I was watching, I said, I don't know, I think this is dubstep Houdini, if that gives you any idea. The one thing I will give it It really does make a difference when you can see these tricks being performed and when you can see what things looked like back then. So the costumes, all that stuff. The show is terrible, but to get a sense of what was happening, I'd recommend it. But in all honesty, if you're interested in the time period and the work of magicians, you're better off watching the Christopher Nolan film, The Prestige, which stars Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, and David Bowie as Nikola Tesla. It's not about Houdini, but it's a great movie that will give you a flavor of the magic scene at the time. Apparently, there was also a series called Houdini and Doyle, but it got canceled after one season back in 2016. I'm curious to check it out, but I haven't seen it as yet. In terms of nonfiction, the biography I chose was The Secret Life of Houdini, which I'll link to in the show notes. This one I found to be the most recent and comprehensive. I also enjoyed that there are portions of it told like a novel, which made it more interesting to read. Then there were two books aimed at probably middle grade readers or young adults. 
The Magician and the Spirits by Deborah Noyes was beautifully illustrated and focuses just on Houdini's crusade to bunk mediums. I could see young readers being really into this book. Then there's Escape, the story of the great Houdini by Sid Fleischman. What's interesting about this book is that Sid actually befriended Bess Houdini before she died when she moved out to California after Houdini's death. So while Sid didn't get to meet Houdini himself, he has a lot of insider knowledge and he's also the author of other books for kids. So he's got great sensibilities on how to tell a story with kid interests in mind. Okay, Houdini in adult fiction. There were two that I focused on for this episode. The Confabulist, which was basically a novel retelling of the biography that I mentioned. I listened to this on audiobook and the man did a Houdini voice, which I found really grating. But then I looked online and found a recording of Houdini, and yeah, that's just what he sounded like. I'll link to that as well. I really enjoyed the book overall. It's kind of a confusing read because it switches character perspectives and not all are straight historical figures, but otherwise, beautiful prose and action-packed story. Next, we've got Mrs. Houdini, which is told from Bess's point of view. In this book, Harry was a straight-up cruel womanizer, which was kind of shocking to me. He was a teetotaler who worshipped his mother, so I just assumed that he was squeaky clean, but maybe not. He may have had a lot of affairs. I didn't really focus too much research on that. But anyway, the story itself was interesting, and honestly, I always prefer hearing things from the woman's perspective, so I liked that Bess was kind of given her due. Again, I didn't focus on her too much in this episode because I'll be dedicating some episodes to her later this month. In terms of podcasts... There are a lot of Houdini episodes to sort through, but the very best, most interesting one was an episode of Bowery Boys podcast called Harry Houdini and the Golden Age of Magic in New York. Okay, this podcast has been around for more than a decade, and I'd never heard of it, but these guys talk about New York history. I think I've mentioned before that I was born there, and while I was raised entirely on the West Coast, I still absolutely love learning about New York history. This episode was so well done, and I have officially subscribed because they have tons of fascinating episodes. I'm listening to one right now about Edgar Allan Poe because apparently he wrote The Raven in New York. Okay, the last place where I recommend you go for further reading about Houdini is a website called Wild About Harry. It's run by a man named John Cox, and he to this day regularly updates it about Houdini news. This is a great source of information and just goes to show you that truth is stranger than fiction. Last, remember at the beginning I talked about the Magic Castle in Los Angeles? Well, you're in luck. During October, they have Houdini seances that are open to the public, so the rule that you have to know a magician is waived. That is on my bucket list for sure. That's all I've got for you on this episode of Storical. Thank you for indulging my strange interests, and I hope that you enjoyed learning about Houdini. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. Tune in every Monday for the rest of October for historical footnotes, where we'll talk more specifics about the Houdinis. And join me next month for the tragic tale of a frivolous queen who lost more than her head. Mm -hmm.